But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who has a theory that is the A pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? and you can schedule it so that the reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response when a pigeon pecking at the disc. You know what is happening? You know what it is? It's Spit and Twitches Season 2 is here, and I'm your host, Dave Broadbeck. Isn't this great? Uh, the podcast is back. I'm excited. I hope you're excited. The last time I was in some of your ear holes uh, was, geez, 2016? And in between then, we've had what? A global pandemic? No big deal? Um, who knows? Uh, we've got the Montreal Canadiens in the semifinals of the Stanley Cup playoffs. I know that doesn't matter to most of you, but I'm just going to just hammer that in there. And uh, we have season two of Spit and Twitches. And why the big gap between seasons? Well, I have a job. And these things are a bit of work. <laughs> uh, so I have a sabbatical, though. So my sabbatical project is doing this. So I'm very excited. We're opening up season two with Jenna Congdon. Uh, Jenna uh, is a postdoctoral researcher at York University with Suzanne McDonald. You may remember Suzanne from such podcasts as Spit and Twitches, the Animal Cognition Podcast. She started her career out as a student at Algoma University, go Thunderbirds, uh, where she was a biology student. And then she took intro psych as an elective. And she found that it was cooler than biology. Um, gonna take some credit there because I was the prof and I think it's mostly because I, um, I yell a lot. My teaching tip to, uh, to the young people, if I to impart any knowledge is just yell, just scream out what's, what's cool. That's what I did. Um, probably won't work for you. It works somehow for me. Um, so she eventually did her honors thesis with me and, uh, she went off to do her master's and her PhD with Chris Sturdy. We'll talk some about, of course, about her PhD work, uh, in the podcast episode coming up. Um, she finished that up a couple of years ago and she's been, uh, working up until recently as a, a sessional lecturer at a, at a couple of places, Concordia University of Edmonton, University of Alberta, but now she's working as a postdoc and it's pretty exciting at, uh, Toronto Zoo, um, with Suzanne McDonald. So, uh, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jenna Conger. Jenna, how's it going? Good. How are you, Dave? I'm good. I'm good. This is weird. Um, doing this again is fun. It's exciting for me. And of course, as, tra- as is tradition, someone from the Songbird Neuroethology Lab, perhaps an alumna, alumna uh, such as you, or in fact, the person whose lab it is, has to be on the first episode of each season. So welcome to season two, episode one or episode 20 of Spit and Twitches. It's great to have you here. Thanks. And yeah. congrats on season two. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, it's because I got a sabbatical. <laughs> so <laughs> that's when I, I mean, that's really the only time I can do these things. They're actually quite a bit of work. Um, so, I mean, I'm not sure. I've done a lot of podcasts. At the end, when I list all the podcasts, people can tune into that's fine. But um, I t- treat this sort of more like work. <laughs> so I actually, you know, do background work and everything. I don't just 
not just flying don't off just the... phone up kind of thing no <laughs> no exactly unlike every other hobby podcast that i do um so you have been working on just recently you just got your you got when did you get your phd again it was 2019 already it's it was so, 19 yeah yeah it's almost two years somehow wow. Wow, Doctor Condon. Um, are you are you tired of that yet? Or you are you are you like it? Still? Oh no, I never get sick of it. <laughs> uh, actually, Chris started calling me Doctor J on the first day of my master's. Oh, so you kind of you kind of have to. That's beautiful. Yeah, and uh, my uh, my one friend she likes to call me Doctora, and I never get sick of that. I like I like it when there are times when I use it, and it's very rare. But it is things like. And everybody's different and I'm not judging anybody no matter how they use their title. That's cool. It's earned. But I use it when I complain about things. So it's like when I, if I have to call up the cable company. Hello, this is Dr. Broadbeck. I've got a problem. Um, that seems to work. Uh, also got a table so, at a restaurant once when they wouldn't, weren't giving out tables. So I remember you saying that in undergrad and it's also the only time I've used it on purpose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. With everything with the, the pandemic and trying to get, you know, flight money back and things like that. All oh, yeah. of a sudden I am a doctor. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah. And it's funny. They, they, Oh, 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 well, yes. Well, that's good. Uh, so congratulations again. I mean, I know it was a couple of years ago and I did congratulate you at the time. And I did, in fact, I believe do it publicly on a Facebook post. Nonetheless, Yes, uh, congratulations. It's, 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 it's exciting. Um, Thanks, Dave. So, so let's, let's go way back. Let's, as I tend to do, talk about your origin story. Uh, this is sort of uh, my nod to sort of uh, Mark Marin, really on his podcast, constantly asking people, who are you guys? So uh, when you started your undergrad here at, well, not here, I'm not, it's at Algoma, I'm in my house, but at Algoma, that would have been 2009. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yes. I'm just, I, I know who taught you intro psych because I, I think that's me. And I believe that was the it might have been you. That's <laughs> <laughs> the last year I taught intro because I think I scare the students. They don't let me. It was, I mean, it was technically 2010 when I took intro with you because it was the winter oh. semester. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Okay. So I, if I'm still, recalling correctly, I think it was the winter of 2010. So still my first year. Yeah. Okay. So you start, some, start in 09, you start as a biology student, correct? Yes. Why did you switch? I mean, I, I'm all, I'm glad you switched. Don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm more curious as to why. Honestly, I just didn't know what I wanted when I started undergrad. Uh, that was part of the reason I stayed home. My parents, you know, made a great point about uh, staying close, saving some money. Well, I was completely unsure what I was doing. Yeah, so I actually applied to nursing at Laurentian, oh. um, biology, and business at Algoma both of those and trying to make that decision biology seemed to be the best fit for me okay uh, when i showed up i wasn't as excited as i was about you know taking that psych class and realizing and that's fair it's not just yeah. clinical no i mean i think that's the thing that a lot of intros do i mean when i went into psychology i wanted to be a clinician that's why i i was going to help the people who were sick then i found that i had enough personal problems of my own but uh <laughs> i mean I didn't find out about the area at all, animal learning, animal cognition, really until, well, I mean, this intro, but then I, I worked as an RA. I mean, there's so weird mm -hmm. things just happen in third year. Um, so you switch your majors, you become a psych student. Um, I, I'm going to say that I actually literally 
don't think I remember you in intro psych simply because I had a lot of people in that class. I'm, you know, 60, 65 people for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think your brother who I knew and no, I mentioned to me that I was teaching you. Um, but it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You her and a lot of others. Uh, yeah. but uh, I, I think actually it was vice versa. I walked down to the front one day oh. and used my brother as the kind of, you know, icebreaker. Oh, oh, I see. So you mentioned Spencer like, to you me. You know, okay. my brother and you're like, yes, why what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I remember him going on a long, just talking, driving back from a video game conference, talking about what controllers he liked for about an hour. And I was like, oh, you just stopped, dude. Um, I didn't because that would be me. Anyway. Well, you know, it turned out well for him. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Again, he's fine. <laughs> it's, this is all, these are all most, all indicating that I'm a loser, not him. Um, I think that the first time I actually really remember you, though, I guess was, I think you took, was it memory with me or was it neuropharmacology? It was something yeah. you, you give a presentation. I actually a presentation. took memory and correct me if I'm wrong. It was a third year class and I took it yeah. for my second year. You did. That's right. Um, I remember that class quite specifically because it was a bit of a life changer uh, because I read the syllabus, saw that there were presentations and wanted to quit. <laughs> so a lot of students um, in second year like that. Yeah. Yeah. At that time, I just, I didn't want to give presentations and I kind of at that point went home and was like, Oh, I don't know if I really want to take this class. And then I was like, I don't think I can get away from public presentations for the no. rest of my life. So no. I should probably figure this out now. Yeah. And then, you know, the, um, short version of it is that I absolutely love giving the public talks yeah, now. I, I yeah. love teaching, et cetera. Yeah. And you are a very good speaker and you were right away. Uh, that's something I noticed right away. Uh, I remember who else Stephanie Tannen was in that class and, uh, and Stephanie's got a PhD as well. Uh, and I remember uh, her, she was my honor student at the time. And she said to me, she's really, really a good speaker. And I said, I know, yeah, she's good. I'm going to keep my eye on her. So you end up doing your thesis <laughs> with me, which was great. Um, on a weird convoluted idea we had that we needn't discuss. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it was a strange project and it was kind of fun to do. Uh, we were lying to people and that was good. Um, but after that- <laughs> We're just leaving it at that description, eh? We, yeah. we lied to some people, saw how they did. We lied to some people about how their brains worked and saw if it affected their way their behavior was. It's it's It was a thing. Um, because Jenna came to me and said, uh, is there a way that we could do P300 work? And I said, no. Um, so we, we told people, other, and it doesn't matter. Uh, you went on and you went on to work with Chris Sturdy and you mentioned Chris, of course. Um, what was the thing that made you want to go to Alberta and work with uh, Chris? Other than the fact that, you know, he's pretty great, even though I'm not a big fan of his. I kid, I kid. Why, why, why did you want to go to work with Chris? Do you, so you probably don't remember then, um, oh, I, I had I asked you for advice uh, of, you know, where to go to grad school and you had mentioned uh, Hampton, et cetera. Yep. And then one night you emailed me and was, uh, you were like, hey, one of my buddies uh, has an opening. I noticed the opening. What do you think about songbird research? And I was like, <laughs> is that a what thing? does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought much about that. Of course, looked everything up, uh, you know, yeah. fell in love with the, the methodology. And, and uh, then from there, I was invited to fly out and yeah. 
um, of course, talked to all his grad students at the time, overwhelmingly positive reviews, sure. um, as I can now add to after yeah. both a master's and a PhD with him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, he was just the perfect fit. He, yeah, I get he's that. He's so supportive and and positive uh, with his students, you know, mental health, physical health, those things matter, as well as the actual scientific output. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I kid about Chris, me not being a fan of Chris, it's obviously <laughs> a lie. Uh, I was really happy that you ended up going there, um, having uh, sent him another student in the past, uh, Lori Bloomfield, who you actually worked in Lori's lab here for a while when you were, you did a couple summer inserts, right? Yeah, so I was um, already, I had already flown out to interview with Chris, and it was around the same time that I was like, if I'm going to work in the Songbird Neurothology Lab, fingers crossed, uh, yeah. then I should probably get some experience uh, in advance. So I did some volunteering in the winter of 2013, mm -hmm. and then at that time we applied for that summer NSERC, the USRA. Yeah. And so I, I did that for the summer before I left for Edmonton. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of students don't realize that, you know, you don't necessarily need experience in an area to get into graduate school in an area, but it is important if you can, there's nothing wrong with doing it to give you an idea of what it's going to be like, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I had, I had also worked with uh, Dwayne Keogh for a couple of years. As yeah, well. that's right. That's right. Poor you. Um, again, these are, <laughs> some of these are jokes. I'm kidding, Keo. He's not listening. There's no way he's listening to this. Um, I'll send it to him directly. Sure. Oh, I will. Don't. There's, there's no problem there. Uh, I was in a meeting with him, and there were two instances of him. Uh, I think it was on his bike and his on his bike. Sorry, what do I say? I think it was on his bike, but a, a, a laptop and his phone. And and uh, one of us said that that well, that's too too many Dwaynes. Um, we kid, we kid because we love. When you did your PhD work, um. A lot of it was on, well, to tell me, tell me basically what the broad strokes of what your PhD stuff was on. Let's, let's have you tell the story. So my PhD very generally was focused on the perception and communication of predator threat yeah. in black cap chickadees. I yeah. love the predator prey interactions, seeing how these vocal learning species communicate mm -hmm. about these different types of predators and also how they behave according to essentially who's in front of them. Right. And I mean, there's a, it's a pretty cool paradigm because what you did is you took a, the idea of, of class, classifying things, right. Which is something that, I mean, I go back to Chris's advisor, Ron Wiseman, who sort of came up with the idea of the, you know, the, per, the, the, the uh, relative pitch versus uh, perfect pitch thing. And to see if they could class, if birds would classify, different things in a go, no go task. And you sort of took that and put it on its, on its side and said, let's do this with sort of predator calls and seeing if say chickadees, for example, can recognize predator calls, even another species, right? Yeah. So not, uh, so a lot of different predator calls, owls and hawks. Yeah. Um, one of the kind of main projects of my PhD, four out of five of them, we're all using the operant paradigm because it's just such a wonderful way to ask yeah, it's questions great, right? yep. to, a, of course, a nonverbal, at least our language, uh, animal. Yeah. They're so, speaking a secret language, Jenna. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> so one of my experiments um, that you know was kind of the highlight was really looking at taking the owls and hawks calls because yeah. a lot of the work has been done with 
the mobbing calls versus the predator yep. calls, for example. And some of my masters did that as well as there were a couple PhD projects that lined up with that. Mm -hmm. But this one was really exciting because it was entirely just the sound of the owls. So no visual or anything, just hearing them mm -hmm. and how do they category, uh, how do they categorize them yeah. as say high or low? Yeah. And basically asking the question of what do you perceive them as? Because there's been the work by Templeton et al, 2005, mm -hmm. um, seeing that the chickadees will produce more D notes to higher threat predators, yeah. um, which the higher threat predators are actually the small ones, the ones that can maneuver through the trees easily. Um, something actually I vividly remember standing in the bush with Lori Bloomfield um, and she's like, oh, what do you think high threat predators are? And I'm, I'm like, I, I don't know. And she's like, it's actually the small ones. Ah. Um, and talking about that D note production. So I've been, you know, interested in on that train mm -hmm. since working with her. Mm -hmm. But we were able to ask them, what do you actually perceive? And of course they categorize the ones we already had quite a bit of evidence for as high versus low. Sure. But then we took all these mid-sized predators and where do you categorize them? And we found that um, the short-eared owls, for example, um, that they are classified as low according to how they responded in those operant chambers. The broad-winged hawks, they are more of a high threat predator. But then we also found those mid-sized predators, um, Cooper's hawks and northern hawk owls, they didn't respond to those differentially. <laughs> so essentially we're finding that they're a mid-threat versus right. the high and the low. And right. so it was really neat to essentially map out a continuum of predator threat. So it was kind of the only eureka moment I've ever had in a lab where it's like, oh my goodness, the data explicitly is telling us yeah. chickadees put them here versus there or right yeah. smack dab in the middle. Yeah, And I, I love this approach because you're letting the animal tell you things rather than sort of assuming that that you would know better than the animal's <laughs> life history, right? And I mean, we, we have a tendency to do that. It's, it's very simple for us to, I mean, and you know, even pros like you and I, and it's like, um, oh, well, that's gotta be a high threat. Oh, that's gotta be. And it's like, no, really, that's not true. I remember talking to your current, uh, your postdoc advisor, Suzanne McDonald, and her saying that, you know, it turns out that I think it was some kind of monkey. They don't like music at all. Yes. So yes. stop playing the music. <laughs> um, yeah, music's very pleasant to you and me, but maybe they don't want it. And this is the same kind of thing. And I, I don't think enough people, I think, well, I, I should rephrase this. There was a time when people didn't do this very much. Um, that time has passed. Uh, this was a time, I guess I would say that probably when, when, when Chris was in grad school, when I was in grad school, there was a lot, there were a lot more people saying, here's how things work. Now do this rat. Now do this pigeon. And there were some of us who weren't doing it that way. People like Chris and I, but the vast majority were, 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 I think going a different way. And I love the fact that things have completely gone the other way now. And it's like the animal knows what it knows and let's find out what it knows. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, the, the work you did in your PhD, it, uh, I liked the stuff as well when you were doing stuff comparing humans and chickadees, right? Yes. So that's the one that got, you know, kind of the, the yeah. media attention. Yeah. I, and I remember that. It's like, wait, I know her. Why is she on the CBC? <laughs> She's, I know her. 
Yeah. Yeah. CBC Global, yeah. Uh, Canadian Geographic. It was, uh, <laughs> it was crazy. It was a wild time. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. Popular media attention is fun. Uh, yeah. But talk a little bit about the work. Popular media attention is fun, but also yeah. really hard to make sure they tell the right story. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've had. Yeah, I've told you the story about the imprinting story a long time ago. So I don't think I remember. Oh, that that's one. well. Yeah, it was a it was a farm here, and they had a, a, a was it a, a goose? I think that that uh, imprinted on a donkey. It's you know it happens. And the guy from CTV calls me up and says, um, uh, "I get a horse rather than a donkey." And he says, "Can you tell me what? I'm just going to show up and you tell me what's going on. I want to get your reaction." It's like, okay. So he's interviewing me with his camera on his shoulder, and he says, "So this is what happened." And I said, oh, that's pretty simple to explain. He thought he'd going to stump me. I said, it's simple to explain. The, 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 the goose imprinted on, on the horse. <laughs> and what's happened here, and I went through this whole thing. I'd even talked some, about some of Nikki Clayton's work about, you know, an increase in uh, cell density and IMHV, all this stuff. And then at the end, he said, you think they're happy? I said, if the goose is happy and the horse is happy, I'm happy. But that's the only thing that was got out of the world. Of course. And it got picked up by <laughs> national news. And I was getting emails from people saying, oh, yeah. Way to go, Dr. Science, if the goose is happy. <laughs> so anyway, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, I, I had yeah. a similar a similar quote. Actually, the Canadian Geographic one explains nothing about the experiment. They just took a quote where I was trying to explain to somebody at the U of A the idea of arousal within a vocalization. That, first of all, everybody assumes arousal is sexual. And of it's course, not. It's because it's they're idiots. physiological yeah. increase, really. Exactly, yeah. And so explaining that, I was like, a vocalization with arousal, for example, could be if your friend scares you when you scream. And that's the only quote that, you know, somehow made it over to Canadian Geographic. And I was like, it's so excited to put it to put those words, Canadian Geographic, on your CV, but hopefully no one ever no one goes opens and looks the article. Yeah. Oh, no, that's, that's yeah, it's any popular media thing. They're on my CV, but I, I never put URLs to find them. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, only the URLs for the ones that you're like, no, that one sounds oh, no, that's good. good. That's good. Yeah, it sounded pretty good there, and the person understood it. Um, so, yeah, you were comparing, you know, people's perception of predator calls and chickadees, and what... Um, what was the impetus for doing that? Actually, that one wasn't uh, necessarily predators. It was a whole array of species. Oh, right. We That's had right. Right. nine different species. So that was kind of my one not predator uh, work. That's right. So it does have the predator element in that we use the mobbing calls from chickadees. That's so they were okay. still high threat, low threat, which obviously uh, that's where that's coming from. Yep. But the other species were all different types of arousal. Um, let's see if I can remember all nine. Uh, pandas, piglets, ravens, uh, of course, humans and songbirds, chickadees specifically. Frogs. What am I at? Six. six. Oh, you're at six. That's, you, that's that, not good. <laughs> no, no, that's Frogs, impressive. The crocodiles. Cro crocodiles. Okay. Yeah, the crocodiles are. Um, oh, elephants. I don't think elephants. I mentioned elephants. Does no, no you haven't. You've not mentioned elephants. No, you have one left. Okay. I think it was actually only eight anyway. Okay. Yeah, let's see. Let's, let's I'm just going to switch eight. the number to. It's eight. It's eight. It was obviously eight. It was obviously eight. Um, it was always eight. And, and um, I love the fact that there oh, was, Barbary macaques. Okay, Barbary so it's not. It's actually nine. nine. That was the yeah. that was the bonus species. Um, <laughs> I like the idea that the these similarities between such disparate species was a thing. You know, uh, us and little so, birds, right? 
the idea of this, you know, dates all the way back to Darwin, the idea that there is emotion within vocalizations produced at as early as the earliest terrestrial ancestor. Mm -hmm. And so coming from that, the idea that we all have the ability to express emotion through our vocalizations. And with that, then there should be some sort of um, general acoustic contained within these vocalizations. So we took all of those species, we got vocalizations from wonderful array of different researchers, and we did one experiment first, Piera's experiment, Piera Filippi. Um, I think she was in Vienna at the time. And she came to us asking about getting some chickadee vocalizations. Mm -hmm. Chris was like, hey, this is the exact kind of thing that Jenna's interested. What can we do? Yeah, let's do it. So, thing. Yeah. you know, uh, we had a wonderful international collaboration there, which is a fun thing to initiate as early as my master's. And so she did a purely human experiment first, which was very simply on the screen, which is higher arousal. Right. And so that's a very easy task for humans to do. Sure. So no surprise, it went very well. Um, wonderful display of those acoustic universals. And so that included um, mam mammals and reptilia yeah. um, and amphibia. So all of those classes mm -hmm. for vocalizations but for me, working with that go-no-go -no -go procedure, I really wanted to ask chickadees. And so I wanted to take those stimuli and ask chickadees. But I wanted to make sure it was comparative with humans as well. Mm -hmm. So the thing about chickadees is, of course, you can't hand them a survey. You can't say, I specifically want two things on a screen peck the higher one. They're not really a species that wants to peck as much as they like to hop. Yeah. So with the go, no go procedure, mm -hmm. it was respond to high, respond to low. Here's novel. Um, how are you responding? Right. So with humans, we did the exact same thing, which means they walked in that room. I gave them no instructions other than how to interact with the screen. Right. And they were still capable of it. Of course. It right. was very um obviously it wasn't off the charts like the very explicitly which one's high yes. this one they're trying to learn in training what is the category just uh -huh. like the birds are trying to learn what is the category but they were capable of learning yeah. the category the true yeah. group did better than the pseudo randomized group yeah. the um same species also in testing chickadees were really really good at distinguishing between high and low arousal vocalizations from pandas chickadees and humans and humans were great at pandas chickadees and humans <laughs> same three species is yeah, yeah. what they were best at so on a much more conceptually difficult task really sure. they were both capable of it so it was it was really fun yeah and I, the, the cool thing there i think is that you know um one of the things that always strikes me is that you know while you know humans are way more different than any other species really cognitively i think but there's a whole lot of similarities and the 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 sort of built-in cognitive architecture that we all have um you know uh, there, there's stuff there that, that are that are almost universal which makes a lot of sense from a you know evolutionary perspective because the ability to detect low and high levels of arousal in uh members of another species or your own species is pretty adaptive right 
Well, and I'm I'm fairly certain that none of our chickadees have ever interacted with a panda. Seems exceedingly um, unlikely. So that's you know that's definitely one of the highlights yeah. of that. And that yeah, and exactly. Even really, um, the average human. How many times have you? Heard I don't know what pandas sound, sound like. It's uh, it's actually quite a cute vocalization. I would imagine. Well, <laughs> the, of course, it the is. pandas and even the alligators because we use baby alligators. Oh, okay. Um, so the vocalizations are you know, if you will, quite cute. <laughs> um, you also managed to do the odd side project. And I know Chris is really big on this and this, this various labs, everybody's a little bit different, um, but he liked, he's cool with the idea of people doing side projects during their graduate work, right? Chris is so wonderfully supportive in that way. I not only, you know, had five chapters of my PhD, but I think there were, there were two or three I still have yet to, to finish writing up for mm -hmm. him as well, uh, mm -hmm. that were all still bird related sure. um, or with human subjects solely um, as my side projects. But also, I, I assume you're also referring to my time with Marcia yes. Spech. Of course. And that was a, a fun way in that we, basically I went to a departmental seminar. I already knew Marcia in that I took some graduate classes from her in my master's. Sure. She was uh, someone on my supervisory committee, which is amazing because obviously I spent my entire undergrad listening to you talk about how amazing Marcia Spetsch oh, is. Oh, Marcy, Marcia's great. She's, she's, she's wonderful. She's one of the best. Yep. My, yeah, my colleagues made fun of me for um, quite a while because I, I forgot to speak probably the first month of my master's in class with Marcia Spetsch. Um, but I went to one of these departmental seminars and she talked about this new work that she was doing with Baromesser pergandii, a species of desert harvester ant. And she was doing this entirely by herself, you know, would fly down to her home in Arizona, walk out to the desert, run around the desert by herself. And um, I thought- I, I now have this funny picture of Marcia running around in a floppy hat in the desert. I, anyway, continue. <laughs> I have that actual image. I'm, I'm sure you. I'm sure you too. do because it's a, you would have to wear the big hat. You're in the desert. I mean, I'm not making fun of the hat choice. It's the idea of her just running. The everywhere. hat is useful because oh. the first day I went down, which I can get to later, but I wore the wrong <laughs> hat, and it was you know heat stroke. Yeah. It was a mess. I didn't think I was going to get invited back after the display. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this this talk and she joked at the end, you know, an offhanded comment of, you know, if anyone wants Anybody to wants run to around the desert with me, <laughs> you're like right here, dude. I literally did put up my hand. <laughs> I was that's like, awesome. yes, that's going to be, yes. that's going to be, me. I want to go to there. That's, so that, then that's wonderful. I emailed her, you know, a day or two later and was like, I, you know, I wasn't really kidding. Um, <laughs> if there's any opportunity, I would love to run around the desert awesome. um, and help you out. And she was like, well, you know, what does Chris think about this? And Chris said, as long as, you know, the birds are covered, then off you go. And yep. I mean, I have the most wonderful collaborative lab. So everybody just jumped on sure. my operant days and sure. um, I was able to fly down there. And, and for me, it was really just for experience. I wanted to go. I wanted to see these ants because oh, yeah. what's so interesting about them is, of course, we know about ants and their mathematical vectors getting back to the nest. Mm -hmm. But these ants, instead of that individual foraging, they travel out as a group. So thousands of ants travel three to 40 meters every day in this column is what we call it. Okay. And then from there, 
they travel out into the foraging fan individually. Uh -huh. Then when they're finished, they come back to the end of the column. So where the column meets the foraging fan, and then they travel back down that column again. Cool. So that column, again, three to 40 meters changes distance and direction every single day. Yeah. So instead of remembering one specific nest location, yeah. they're remembering a new location of the end of the column every single day. Mm -hmm. After, again, traveling such an incredible distance for a very, very small ant. And this was fascinating. So I was like, I need to see thousands of ants oh, like yeah. moving in a column. Yeah. And it did not disappoint. It was absolutely incredible. And um, I like to joke that really what we did was just try to confuse the ants um, to try to try <laughs> yeah, to see yeah. how they're well, navigating. That's what, well, that's that's what the, all those navigation experiments, all that you know. My whole career is based on confusing animals. Uh, exactly, you know, it's the idea of a hey, look. You think it's there? It also looks like it's there. Pick one, buddy. That's that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> Turns I mean, out it's it's yeah. hard to confuse ants though. Right. They're incredible. And they've got a lot of backup systems, basically, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah, a lot of redundant, which makes sense if you're, especially if you're going out in the desert, they forage in the day? Yes, um, wow. but specifically when it's less hot, uh, which <laughs> is a little bit fun because you go out in the morning and you collect all your data and then they all go underground um, and then we go home and we play in the pool for a while. Well, yeah. Well, no, there's nothing else. To, I mean, it's, well, it's like 45 degrees out. You're not, you're not hanging out in that, in the sun. Like that's bad. Yeah. So that's Mercy bad. and I would go for a swim and lunch and then go back out in the evening and collect more data. It was, nice. it was really the perfect research scenario. I mean, I, I love, you know, getting involved in other stuff. Uh, Sarah was like that too. Remember when, uh, when Rob Hampton and Ken Cheng and I wanted to do a timing experiment with some chickadees, she said, as long as doesn't, as long as your other stuff gets done, I don't care. Mm -hmm. You know, exactly. find it, do what you got to do. And it was, it was, that was, um, that was a good time. Um, so, you know, you've, you finished up, you went, you're, you're now working on this postdoc with Suzanne. You're working on some artificial intelligence project right now, <laughs> just very quickly. What is that? Uh, yeah, a bit of a surprise, right? Yeah, um, I didn't know that was a thing that you were interested in. So tell me a little bit of, just a little, because it's not, this isn't the AI podcast, but still. Absolutely. So the idea of this artificial intelligence is um, to be able to provide zoos and conservation areas with a way to monitor their animals. And of course, for researchers like ourselves, uh -huh. collect data without standing there with a clipboard and a pen okay. uh, for hours and hours like I did in the desert. Um, <laughs> so in that case, it's basically, we are trying to integrate everything that's already kind of out there for AI, but into one thing. So there's a company in Toronto, um, Eagle, spelt with an AI in the middle, and they already had, of course, artificial intelligence in place for monitoring um, kind of consumers. And they were capable of monitoring temperature. And so Suzanne was mm -hmm. like, this could be really important really, in the yeah. pandemic for ensuring that our animals are safe, ensuring that we can monitor right. their temperature unobtrusively. 
So we wanted to add on all the other factors. So we, of course, know how many there are in a space, uh, where they're located, but also individually, who are we looking at of the six orangutans that are at the Toronto Zoo? And of course, when it gets rolled out to other zoos and conservation areas, then all of those individuals, but again, temperature, as well as uh, we can monitor their limb position. So seeing if their limbs are healthy and, where they're spending their time determining if they might need further enrichment. Of course, their habitats are already incredible. We're rolling out a new outdoor habitat at the Toronto Zoo. Uh, It should be done hopefully by the fall. So that's really exciting. But to be able to actually, again, ask them, how are they doing? Monitor with data and say, this is where they like spending time. This is what they like doing. What can we do to make sure that they're living their most kind of ecologically valid life as well as an enriched one. Yeah. I mean, you want, uh, you know, and this is the thing I think a lot of people don't get about zoos is that, you know, modern zoos in places like Canada, the States, et cetera. um, They're about giving, letting the animal live a really good life and an eco, as you mentioned, an ecologically valid life. Um, and they're also great places for research. They're, they aren't like they were, uh, I could tell you stories about what zoos were like when I was like five years old and you, you don't want to hear them mm-hmm. <laughs> different time. Um, I think Suzanne yeah. talked, uh, about probably- her time in, in Vancouver oh, uh, yes. or BC generally, but her time at that not so wonderful zoo yeah. and, and why she wanted to get involved. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you can make it better and then people can learn things from it and we can learn things from the animals and, you know, we can even help with, uh, you know, endangered species, et cetera. So, I mean, I think, I think it's really important. Exactly. Um, and the yeah. orangutans, they're critically endangered. And um, we plan to roll this out to tigers and polar bears as well. So it's quite a large project, very exciting yeah, uh, opportunity to experience, a, you know, quite an array of different species that I haven't and, worked and, with. And, and tigers. I mean, I just... Tigers. Tigers. <laughs> just big freaking cats are a little... Polar bears not quite as exciting as tigers for you? Or... No, no. Tigers are just... I don't know. I saw a bear. I saw a bear and two cubs today when I was cycling. I, I did. Tur- I saw I, that on I, your I, Facebook Yeah, I turned there. around and went the other way. Uh... It's probably a wise move on my part. Um, so you're get, you'll be moving to your in Edmonton right now. Be moving to Toronto yes. soon, though, right? Yes. Exciting. And then you're going to start on this orangutan co- cognition project. In Absolutely. Get back to to the things I'm I'm most passionate about. I mean, I'm very excited about the artificial. Oh, it's a, it sounds program. very cool. Yeah. And it's it's wonderful because I've been able to do it remotely, and right now, um, you know, Alberta things have been rolling out a bit quicker. It's just like a little bit safer. And honestly, it costs a lot less to live in the condo I own than the, <laughs> than the place I'm going to rent. So it's, it's been nice to have this uh, remote yeah. project that I can work on. That's very exciting. Everybody, again, the, the media train has been insane. Oh yeah. Um, so hopefully we can keep up this media excitement for the actual comparative work. That That'd be awesome. Planned. It's great. I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, doing this, I mean, working with things, something like an orangutan, you have to work with a zoo or you have to go to some nature preserve in Indonesia. Uh, and I think this is, this is just to me, it's, it's really cool. It's exciting. It's, it's applied in a way, but it's also still pure. I, I love this stuff. I think it's very awesome. Um, I appreciate my basic science most. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, yeah, of course. That, I mean, same here. That's the most fun, but there's also, you know, the idea that 
you know, I've always said, you know, we're not curing cancer, right? Like <laughs> in, the, in the grand scheme of things, we're not curing cancer is, is, is all, but it's nice when you can say to somebody, even if that's some, maybe even if that's somebody's a federal granting agency, here's the practical application of this. Um, so, you know, not that I'm dismissing the importance of practical applications. All I'm saying is that a lot of us aren't horribly interested in that, but it's nice when it's there. It's a nice side thing, right? Um, it's easier to, to convince people of why it's important sometimes. Yeah. No, no, that's right. And that's, it's, that's it's all important. Practical. Yeah. It's all exciting, but uh, yeah, the, the granting agencies, as you said, kind of get it more. Yeah. I mean, there's that box you check you know? <laughs> and it's, an, and it's not, I mean, I'm not trying to dismiss it. It sounds probably like I am and I'm not. Uh, I know when I review NSERCs and things from all over the place, I mean, when I see that, it's like, oh, that's also cool. That's not why I'm the merit of this, but this is also cool. And I think it's very exciting that you're going to be doing stuff. You're doing stuff now like that, but also this uh, just general stuff on uh, the orangs. I, I'm, I'm look, I look forward to hearing about it because those are fascinating animals. Um, when you, I mean, you just finished up, you're doing a little, you've been doing a little bit of teaching, right? For Concordia University of Edmonton and U of A as well, or? Yes, yeah. I, I taught at the U of A um, after defending there. I already, you know, kind of had my sure. my pick of classes. So it was uh, pretty wonderful. Um, so, I mean, I taught intro, behavior modification, principles of learning, comparative cognition, uh, you know, getting those fourth year seminar classes. That was, that was wonderful. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, I got to teach at Concordia University of Edmonton and that was wonderful because I've always thought that I'm going to be at a smaller institution because I, I do like teaching. I yeah. love talking about how cool animals are yeah. and how incredible the principles of learning are. And so to be able to you know, excitedly shout about science as a job. Yeah. Uh, that sounds yes. wonderful. So, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's how I just describe what you do. Just yeah, to... believe me, I've already recorded the intro and there's a part where I mention how my teaching style is mostly just yelling. Yes, <laughs> so and that was my favorite thing about you. It's impossible to zone out in a class where someone is as excited about science. Like, I mean, even even Tej, I mean, he obviously took many of your classes. Yes. Uh, dating at the time, obviously now we're married. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he wasn't as passionate about psych as I was, but he was very passionate about your classes. Oh, that's nice. that's uh, nice to hear. That's nice to hear. So you, you translated your passion for science into passion for teaching too. Like you're, you're exactly. totally cool with that, right? Yes. I, I love both realms. Um, which is, which is great because I, I am quite happy in both, but a big thing for the postdoc is that I just, I want even more experience before I kind of oh, well, yeah. settle down. I don't know if I'll ever settle down. Cause when those side projects come up, I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Fly me down to Arizona. Like I've, <laughs> I've told Suzanne, you need me to go to, to Kenya or Costa Rica, whatever I'm yeah. in. Yeah. Um, we already have plans to go down to New York. Uh, a zoo has invited us down there That's to, exciting. um, yeah, to come and look at their habitat that they're creating for their orangutans. That's so amazing. I love the side projects. <laughs> no, but that's I great. do. Yeah. I really love the teaching as well. And that's something I'm excited to get out of working with the Toronto Zoo because they're so much about science communication. I yes. want to get more involved in that. Yes. I've 
gone to the TELUS world of science here. Our lab always made a point to go to that as mm -hmm. often as possible to mm -hmm. make sure that the research that's funded by the public does get back to the exactly. public. No, that's, that's, that's you know, as, as much as I was sort of cynically saying all these things about granting agencies, this <laughs> is the public's money and they deserve to know what's going, how we're spending their money. And I think that generally they're quite interested. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll have some people yep. who are like birds, why? Uh, or yes, ants, of course. do you mean like, you know, your, your mother's sister? I'm like, no, desert <laughs> ants. Oh, um, you're trying to figure out a way to kill them? Or if you accidentally mention psychology, they ask if you have, you know, tiny couches for birds and it's that kind of thing. That's when you leave. Orangutans, when you turn around, though, walk away. Yeah. <laughs> Orangutans are a little bit uh, easier to explain that sure. excitement and the importance of it, really, because sure. they're soon not going to live in the wild. This is our only opportunity to exactly. work with them and also find a way to make sure that they can get back to the wild again someday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as somebody who recently enough finished up grad school and probably still feels a little bit like a grad student. I know I did for most of my postdoc. I <laughs> when like does that stop by the way? Uh, I was about 40. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. That's when we bought our first mattress. That wasn't a futon. Um, we joke that the, the new professors are always the ones that uh, show up first for the pizza during the grad oh, yeah. student stuff. And oh, it's like, yeah. no, 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 this is for us. <laughs> oh, no, that's the way it was. I mean, oh, yeah, I believe me. I still feel it. I, I hear about free things and I'm like, let's oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. And that, that does that literally that never goes away. <laughs> well, you've seen the people at CO3 when they bring out the snacks. <laughs> I don't see them because I'm at the front of the line. <laughs> oh, okay. Fair enough. Um, yeah. I, I, so, you know, what advice do you think you could give to current or future grad students in the area? Honestly, I feel like I just repeat your own advice back to you. Um, it was funny listening. I re-listened to Lori Bloomfield's um, episode with you. Mm -hmm. And she had said at the time that she was, you know, later in her undergrad studies that you weren't at Algoma anymore. No. And so she had said that she kind of missed out on a little bit of the funding advice. And then I remember the very opposite in that we had that advanced stats class, yep. you and Paul both just stood at the front of the class, said a bunch of um, great pieces of advice, and then, you know, just opened it up to questions and said, you know, ask us anything, we will be honest with you. Yep. So I've actually, I've sat on some panels throughout grad studies and since then to try to give people a bit of that advice that, you know, I basically just ripped off from you. Um, but the, the biggest thing is definitely the fit for supervisor. Um, yeah. That really, huge. you know, makes or breaks it. It's and huge. there are multiple stories I could tell you about times where it was so obvious that I had chosen the right supervisor with Chris, <laughs> uh, that it was like, this could have gone the complete opposite way if it were anyone else. Yeah. And so that was really wonderful and was the reason that I stayed there for my PhD. Right. You know, I could have changed but it ended sure. up being much more fruitful to stay with somebody that I knew I had a wonderful relationship with already had way too many projects going uh, <laughs> so might as well stick around and, and finish them up and Fair um, so yes it was I mean geez I I think I exited my PhD with 19 publications um, and I I specifically wanted to join his lab because everybody left there with double digits 
and I wanted to get there and I exceeded my own expectations. Um, so the supervisor fit, he was everything uh, all of us needed to be. He was able to tailor to each of us as well, because what, you know, Kim Campbell needed versus what I needed were very sure. different things. Yeah, and then honestly, you had said the money matters. And I feel like we all kind of, you know, laughed at first. And it's like, no, you need to focus on your research when you're there. That is your job. Yeah. So having TA ships and RA ships that are available versus having to go and be a waitress, um, yeah. it's, it really does make a no, difference. I, I, know, I, I know graduate students who have done that. And I don't know how they do Absolutely. it. I, I have no clue how that's even possible. You know, I it's a 12 hour a day amazed. job, you know, or more. Yeah. The psychology department uh, pays a bit more than other departments. So I had, I had plenty of colleagues who were also bartenders or et cetera. And it's too much. <laughs> no, it's, it's insane. too much. It's insane. It's funny. I know when I started grad school and you look and you go, I've got one class this term. And you go, oh, I see. But that one <laughs> class is with the equivalent of five classes as my undergrad. And I've also got all this other stuff I have to do. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, and I, you know, you remember me saying this, if you like school, it's awesome. I mean, it's great. And I still look back and, you know, I'm still friends with people from back then, uh, the aforementioned Hampton, for example. Um, I mean, these people are still some of my best friends in the world because you'll meet, nobody else knows what you're going through. And you probably had the same experience with Tej where you can, you, they know, and Isabel, my wife, she knows the same thing. She was there, but she wasn't mm. in it. <laughs> like, so it's just, you can talk about it with your partner, but they're not really in it, man. <laughs> so it's absolutely, you know, he, I mean, it was great bringing oh, someone who saw how hard I worked in undergrad. Oh, same um, here. Oh, I know so the feeling, man. Yeah. It was nice versus like, say, dating in grad school. Another thing I wouldn't have wanted to take on, but, but dating and then trying to tell people yeah. why you can't see them because yeah, no I'm one sorry. tells you to go I to have, work. I have birds to feed every day. I'm going to go, you know, run the birds, or I feel like we often said do the birds, which anyone, any other area, people are like, I, what are Excuse you me, doing? What? Excuse me? <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, so he understood that much for sure. And I mean, incredibly, incredibly. Supportive. Oh, yeah. I'm dragging him across the country yet again. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> I know that. I know that one. I've, I've done that. More than yes, more exactly. Than I think we're all fairly familiar with that. If we, uh, yeah, anybody who has a significant other, um, indeed, you get dragged around a little bit, or the long distance, which is something I'm, uh, yeah, I don't not interested in yeah, doing. I don't think I could do that. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, Jenna, do you have, uh, if people want to follow your updates on the internet, is there anywhere they would be able to follow things about you? like your Twitter handle? Absolutely. Um, I'm reasonably active on Twitter. Uh, that's at Jen Kong. Um, I also update my website. At least I try to update my website frequently, jennacongdon.weebly.com. Okay. Um, those are kind of my two main science realms. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to be more active on LinkedIn if people want to find me on there yeah. as well. There's a use for LinkedIn. I didn't know that. Yeah, the um, CEO of the zoo likes to, you know, tag oh, me and things from time to okay, time. So okay. now I'm very active on very good. On That's fair. LinkedIn. I, I always figured the first person who figures out what LinkedIn's actually for will win a Nobel Prize. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm uh, not yeah. getting a job from it, but my current job is, you know. That's fair. It's totally fair. I get it. Um, 
if you want to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, dbroadback. You can look at other podcasts I do. You can find me uh, talking to the aforementioned Isabel on our way to grocery shopping at broken-area.com. You can listen to me talk about Mad Men at scdspodcast.com. That's Sterling Cooper, David Steve. You like old time television? How about bestepisodeever.com? How about Tangential Convergence with Ken Herndon? I have so many podcasts. I don't even know how many I have. And on that note, Jenna, I just want to say a couple things. First of all, thank you very much. And this may sound very self-serving, but I'm really proud of you. Thank you. This has been an honor. But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson who offers a theory that is the mirror opposite of eugenics. Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? The main thing is what, what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward, and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little disc, a little spot in the wall, and you can reinforce with food, but you don't reinforce every time, you every, perhaps every tenth time, or perhaps only once every minute or something like that. There are a very large number of, of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects. the same genome and so they would try to we are a, a clone if you want and, and we try to help our um, gametes to go into the next generation in this case is a conflicting system and um, for that reason this is very interesting this is a parasite and this is um, one of the many hosts that is feeding this baby which doesn't look at all like the like the host and nevertheless they manage to use precise trickery to make them do what they want. <laughs>